Welcome to the In Common Podcast. This is Courtney Hammond-Wagner. Today's commoning episode is focused on topics related to the recent International Association for the Study of the Commons virtual conference on water commons. You can learn more about the conference and other IASC events on their website, iasc-commons.org. Today, I'm joined by three members of the Virtual Water Commons Conference Organizing Committee, Adela Schlager, Tomas Olivier, and Ruth Meinzendick. Adela Schlager is the Director of the School of Government and Public Policy at the University of Arizona. Tomas Olivier is an Assistant Professor of Public Administration at Florida Atlantic University. And finally, Ruth Meinzendick is a Senior Research Fellow at the International Food Policy Research Institute. In this conversation, we run the gamut on water commons. We discuss the state of water commons research, including new exciting directions that were highlighted at the conference, and we get some insights from the field from Adela, Tomas, and Ruth's research. This is the In Common Podcast. I'd love to give each of you the opportunity to introduce yourself um, and say you know, where you are, what you work on. Um, I sort of want to frame this as, as how do you engage with the water commons? So your background, but also how you see yourself engaging with this topic. Would anybody like to start and go first? Adela, <laughs> you want to start? You brought sure. us all together. That's true. <laughs> I did. I'm glad I did. Yes. <laughs> um, I'm Adela Schlager. I'm the Director of the School of Government and Public Policy at the University of Arizona in Tucson, Arizona. And uh, living in the southwestern U.S. means that I live in a region of water scarcity. And uh, there are significant issues of water scarcity. It's a topic that isn't just addressed by, uh, let's say, public managers and uh, elected officials and elites, but it's uh, built into the everyday fabric of people's lives here. And so there's this constant discussion of water scarcity and how do we manage water resources and what is climate change going to mean. Um, so it's a really wonderful place to be to study uh, water governance. I think the other thing that uh, is clear here in the desert Southwest is that water is a commons, that it's shared and it's shared not just within the community, but it's shared across communities and across states. And um, that it's critical to have community engagement as much as it's critical to have state and federal engagement in sharing these um, and managing these shared commons. Um, Tomas or Ruth? Yeah, Ruth, do you want to go? Go ahead. Okay, good. Go ahead. Um, so my name is uh, Tomas Olivier. I am uh, an assistant professor of public administration at Florida Atlantic University in Boca Raton, Florida. I am originally from Argentina, but I did most of my, all of my training here in the, in the US. And uh, what, you know, one of the things or the big questions that I'm all, always thinking about is, you know, I've been trained about on literatures about water governance and institutions in the US, but sometimes when we bring those ideas or try to export those ideas to countries like Argentina, uh, 
things don't seem to work the same way as in, as in countries like the US. So uh, the, the main sort of question that drives my research is trying to understand, you know, why sometimes things don't work in, in those different settings and why sometimes things work. And, and more specifically, I am interested in, you know, in the design of formal institutional arrangements created to govern shared water resources and how those institutional arrangements can influence collaboration between governments and between governments and other organizations. And at the same time, you know, how context in which those institutions exist uh, can affect the design and, and the influence on, on behavior. Right. Well, I'm Ruth Meinsendick. I'm a senior research fellow at International Food Policy Research Institute, which is headquartered in Washington, D.C., but we have offices um, in quite a few developing countries um, or lower and min middle income countries. We, um, we, I grew up in South India in a semi-arid area. So like Adela, I've had that firsthand experience of how water is really essential and woven into the fabric of society. My first study of this was um, for my master's thesis, where I went back and studied how the irrigation tanks near where I grew up were managed and uncovered a whole lot of collective action that was below the radar of what was being publicly recognized. And uh, so have been a part of that. And I find water to be particularly fascinating, but during my career at IFPRI, I've also coordinated a program on collective action and property rights that also looks at um, across all kinds of natural resources, including forests, um, rangelands, and even biodiversity as a commons. And then now uh, a program co-leading a program on um, tenure and governance of natural resources. So I find it really interesting to look at water in depth, but also look across different resources and look at how people manage them. Wonderful. Well, it's, it's so great to have the three of you here. Um, I know I mentioned this to you already, but you've put together a really great conference um, on the water commons. And one way I thought we could start off our conversation today um, is around sort of the, the topic, um, the state of the field um, and maybe where it's come from and where it's going. It's, water is really one of these canonical commons that has been a part of the common study since the beginning. Um, you know, Ruth, you mentioned your work on irrigation um, and how, you know, that's where a lot of these original ideas um, started to percolate, right? And so with your, um, in your experience, as well as, as thinking maybe on your experience at the conference, um, you know, what, what are some of the core questions in the commons, water commons topic that's maybe stayed the same? Like what are some of these drivers, these threads that um, are still core to the study um, and what's changing? What's, um, what are some of the new directions that we're headed? Anybody want to take a stab? So I'll, I'll take a start at that, is that the issues of collective action 
in governance of, of water are still really strong. And they're, you know, I had a, I was moderating a panel that had seven submissions under it. Um, so that maintains, but whereas early studies of water commons tended to focus on more isolated communities, the hills of Nepal, for example, um, it's no accident that our com conference overlapped with a virtual conference on polycentricity in the commons. That realizing that local collective action doesn't happen in isolation, even in the hills of Nepal. And I think one of the interesting things was, for example, we had a keynote conversation with Prachanda Pradhan, who is sort of the godfather of the study of farmer managed irrigation systems who real in Nepal and really brought those to the attention, taught Eleanor Ostrom about, about uh, Nepal irrigation, farmer managed irrigation. And yet even his conversation is looking at what's the effect of migration on the management of these commons. And what's the role of, how does this fit in with communities lobbying the state for resources? You know, how does this all interact? So I think recognizing that complexity has been, you know, an, an overarching trend. Yeah, I would agree with Ruth on that, uh, recognizing that complexity and, um, recognizing it and theorizing on it as well to try to explain it and, and make sense of it um, so that it can be, that added knowledge can be then fed back into uh, policy making and institutional design. Um, and I would say one, issue that repeatedly came up in a number of the panels was the issue of coordination among different levels of governance and, and across different types of organizations, nonprofit, as well as government agencies. And um, people repeatedly pointed to, there's these gaps in coordination where actors who are key to resolving a dilemma are not involved in um, the effort to resolve it, either because they've just never been invited or more often they don't want to participate because collaboration means that you have to give up some of your autonomy and authority and you know there are water agencies that think that they're doing just fine, thank you, and they don't have to coordinate <laughs> or cooperate. Or there are real distributional issues that emerge around coordination of who gets what, and I think that also makes coordination uh, really difficult. But I would say if there was one theme across almost all of the panels, it was coordination in its many forms and the different challenges uh, associated with it. Yeah, and what I would add, one 
theme that I also saw as part of those discussions is, you know, how can we get people to, you know, do that, to, to engage in that, in that, uh, in that coordination? How can we get them to, or, you know, get, you know, decision makers, uh, resource users, and, you know, and even researchers, academics to just engage in, in, in action, right? Uh, and I think that sort of, to me, was a, a sort of a core question that it's, it's in the literature and it showed up in, in our discussions. And then the, the sort of new direct, direction for me that I saw in these discussions was, uh, and as Ruth was saying, is how can we embrace the complexity of, uh, of managing water and, and governing it and acknowledging that it's not just water that at the end of the day we're trying to govern, but it's water in relation to uh, agriculture, to land management. And, and things like that. And that just opens up a new box of, of questions mm -hmm. and, and, and collective action problems that we're still trying to figure out. Um, so to me, that was, um, that was one of the, the key new themes that showed up in, in these discussions and that it's opening up you know, new questions and very interesting avenues for, for new research. I love the way you frame that water in relation to you know, fill in the box because it seems like there's so many um, other commons even, right, that intersect with that. Um, have So these topics that you've just raised, um, you know, the complexity and the coordination um, and the, you know, relation to, have any of you seen those in your own work? If you take that lens back to, you know, topics or case studies that you're working on now, does that resonate with what you're seeing in, um, you know, in your personal work? Yes. Connie <laughs> uh, and I have been working on a particular case for years now on the New York City watersheds. And uh, it's interesting because New York City uh, does not filter its drinking water. And the reason that it doesn't have to is that it works with the upstream communities through a governing arrangement that they've created that they primarily, not exclusively, but primarily aggressively manage land, land use in the watersheds. And so they're not directly managing the water, they're managing what surrounds the water. And um, so I would say that's a, a primary uh, example. Is there a way that that um, managing the land to manage the water, is there any way in particular that you could point to how that, you know, increases the complexity or some of these governance challenges that you were talking about, um, the coordination challenges? Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, if, <laughs> at least in the U.S., if there's uh, one thing that uh, people are touchy about, it's ownership <laughs> and it's property rights. <laughs> and um, in order to manage land, you're immediately involved in affecting people's property rights and what they can do and not do with their property. And so 
this is a success story, but it's a success story that rides on top of a lot of tension and conflict that they've been managing to address. Um, so I would say, uh, you know, you have the big, bad, wealthy city that historically has attempted to exploit and dominate these watersheds because of a change in drinking water standards at the federal level. It forced them into having to work with these communities that before they pretty much just could disregard. And, uh, and now they're having to work with them on this touchiest of topics of property rights. Yeah, and another layer to that, I think, is that with, you know, projections of climate change and, and water availability in the future, we're seeing those, that those tensions are going to increase, you know, because uh, these resource users are depending more and more on the resource. Uh, just to put another example, uh, from my research in, in Patagonia in Argentina, uh, the, the region that I study is also quite dry and arid. And, you know, you have 300,000 people in a large irrigation sector, depending on, on one single river. And, you know, climate change models are saying that 40% of that water is going to be gone in the next 70 years. So that is just telling us that what's coming up, it's, you know, it's even more challenging. Uh, and it's going to highlight those tensions. So I think uh, that's another layer of, of complexity to it. And I, I think one of the things in, in my own work too, I used to talk about, you know, I had this nice little framework showing that when you had technologies above the level of the individual farm, you had to have collective action. And then as got to thinking about it, you know, and that it doesn't have to be collective action, it has to be coordination, which might be done by collective action or by the state, sometimes by markets. And actually, I think this was the first time that markets got pulled into the mix in this conference. And there was an interesting comment that I've also been wrestling with, that we need to use different sets of theory for what motivates individual human beings to work together versus what motivates different types of organizations to coordinate. It's a different theory. Ultimately, organizations are still driven by human beings, but they, you know, somehow I'm still wrestling with uh, merging these different theories. Um, and I try not to use collective action of work across organizations or between the state. It's that coordination. How do we get at that? Ruth, could you, could you dive into that a little bit more with, um, you know, I, we don't have your figure up on the screen here, which I really appreciated <laughs> <laughs> at the conference. Um, but, you know, what, what do you mean about, um, like, what are some of those behaviors and how do they, how do you imagine the theoretical differences as you go from the individual to the organizational? Okay. So just as a 
bit of background. Um, I work, IFPRI is part of something called CGIR, uh, which is a network of international agricultural research centers. And when we started this CAPRI program on collective action and property rights, people would say, why are ag research centers work um, involved in these things, you know, these fuzzy institutional things? And so we had this little framework to show that any technologies or natural resource management practices that were long-term were not going to be adopted unless people had secure tenure or the right property rights. And we used Adela and Lynn Ostrom's framework on, on bundles of rights to say it's not just quote unquote ownership. Then, but then if it's above the level of the individual farm, you have to have, and we used to say collective action and then realized coordination because, so to take a tree, you're not gonna plant that unless you have property rights, but you can do it on your own field. But you can't do reforestation across a watershed to improve water flows, for example, without collective action or without coordination across communities. And then you get into, well, what are the right institutional arrangements for that collective action? And, you know, at one point I studied groundwater markets in Pakistan, and these were informal arrangements. But again, somebody had a well that could pump more water than served his own farm. You could arrange that either by having people group together to buy a well, a collective action solution, or you could have a state government managed tube well didn't work terribly well, or you could have one person who sells to others. A sort of a market arrangement, but then you have to understand these norms and all that go behind that, because people who import the notion of water markets from Western US to Pakistan without understanding the context and the way that's shaped by local norms and all, and that water is a, it's not just a commodity, it has a lot of specialized meaning. So that gets back to Tommy's point, you know, about understanding how these concepts translate or don't translate across contexts. Yeah, I wonder, that's a really, thank you for that, Ruth. Um, I want to follow up on that point and send it to Tomas. So you mentioned the work in Patagonia, um, and maybe, you know, not just um, sticking with that, you can kind of go further if you, if you please. Um, but you, you mentioned that your motivation around, you know, do these sort of um, theoretical origins in the U.S., these ideas of how uh, institutions form and engage with each other, do those work in these new contexts? Um, maybe I, we don't necessarily need to stick to the themes of the complexity and the coordination, um, but mm -hmm. where do you, what are some of your, um, your thoughts moving in that direction? Like, are there some fits or misfits that you could point out? Yeah. So I think to me, in, in, for instance, in the case of Argentina, it's, 
it's quite vivid myself, you know, being, I grew up in Argentina. I know that, you know, we don't care about stop signs in Argentina. <laughs> you know, here in the US, if you don't stop, you're going to get in trouble, right? So it's just that little thing just tells you a lot about rule enforcement and how sometimes you can have a beautifully designed uh, policy or institutional arrangement. But then if you bring that into ground, decision makers or resource users are not going to, you know, abide by it. And I think that's pretty uh, common in a country or in a setting, you know, where policies change quite often because, you know, with the new administration, they try to, uh, you know, disentangle whatever the previous administration did and so on and so forth. And also when rules are not enforced. So in the, the puzzle for me is always like, okay, but how can we get things done or how can we get people to just uh, commit to to coordinate and, and protect uh, a resource or jointly govern a resource. Uh, so, and, and, you know, I'm still trying to figure out the answer to that. Uh, and <laughs> some people, you know, in Patagonia nowadays are talking about some pay payment for ecosystem services or water funds ideas. But, you know, when you go and talk to people about that, then there's another cultural component that kicks in and is that, you know, resource users don't want to know anything with anything related to a dollar sign or an international organization or, you know, putting uh, markets into the framing, right? So I think those, those, those are, I think, to me, clear examples of, of those, of how that context plays a role at the time of, you know, trying to figure out, okay, how we, are we going to commit and, and, and coordinate to, to govern this resource? So one thing that, um, you're talking about that, Tomas, made me think about uh, during the conference, there was a really diverse group of participants um, from a lot of different regions, drawing on a lot of different case studies. Um, and I think some of those themes that you just mentioned came through. Um, I wonder if any of you uh, throughout the conference or in conversations around it were there any new framings of water commons that stuck out to you or new cases that you didn't anticipate seeing or learning from? Yeah, one, one issue or theme that came to me that, I, that I, I've never heard or seen about was one presentation by, uh, the presenter was actually an undergraduate student who talked about cloud seeding, you know, and how these new technologies can uh, influence and, and, you know, water availability or water scarcity and how we deal with that. You know, how, how are we going to govern that, which is very difficult to trace who does it. And then we're very difficult to figure out where that water is going to fall. Uh, so to me, that was a, an eye-opening presentation in that, you know, it made me think about something that I hadn't thought about. And I would, uh, I'd follow up on that. I think it's interesting that, and I was glad that he, uh, that he participated in the conference and raised this issue because I think it raises a whole host of, like Tommy was pointing to, a whole host of governing arrangements of that, um, that not only apply to cloud seeding, but then I think to climate change in general, because you can pretty much say exactly what Tommy said about cloud seeding, uh, you can say the same thing around uh, the impacts of climate change on hydrologic cycles and um, 
we know that hydrologic cycles are changing and that they're going to probably dramatically change over time, although we don't know exactly how or when. And I think um, because of that, there's going to be tremendous pressure placed on existing governing arrangements, because at least in some parts of the world, like in the Western US, governing arrangements generally fit the biophysical setting, but that's increasingly not the case. And the solution isn't going to be building more infrastructure. The primary solutions are going to be changing governing arrangements to fit the hydrologic cycles and then figuring out how all of this infrastructure sort of fits into that. Um, so maybe there'll be more serious attention given by governments. And honestly, uh, universities and other research organizations to institutional arrangements. Um, because one of the dominant themes that runs through water is how engineering centric it is and how frustrating that is to the rest of us who are not engineers. Ruth, did you want to? I hadn't thought about it. I hadn't thought about it until you said that, but the discussion in the US right now about the Infrastructure Act mm -hmm. and whether social infrastructure is infrastructure mm -hmm. has some of these similar issues that there was there was a really interesting um, insight on that. Um, in the, the Brazilian keynote conversation about, what did she call it? Inst I should look around. I ha wrote it down on, on a piece of paper here, institutional work or something like that, that the work of maintaining these institutional arrangements um, and the, the recognition that's needed of uh, that is an, an investment. Yeah, and it, that is interesting because I think there's that corollary in engineering too of the maintenance. Nobody wants to do the maintenance. <laughs> uh, yes. Walter Huppert, at, um, when he was at the German GIZ, did a really interesting study on irrigation maintenance, which when he started it, it was just like, I thought, oh my gosh, this is the most boring topic ever. But it was the governance issues around maintenance. And it was fascinating, the work he did on that. And as an, I mean, he's an engineer, but bringing in uh, all the collective action theories and management theories and all kinds of stuff. Yeah, one, one thing that... Uh... Now that, uh, Ruth, you brought up the, the, the Brazilian keynote conversation, there's an interesting paradox, I think, in that, in, in that case or in that study. And, it, and that is that at the end of the day, it's a, it was about um, water basin organizations in Brazil and, you know, studying organizations that sometimes took off and sometimes did, didn't. But at the end of the day, the common denominator between the ones that did take off was that they were... Um, 
the people behind those organizations. We're the engineers, you know, we're the technical experts, the ones who pushed to, to, to mobilize uh, people to, to coordinate and, and get those uh, river basins organizations off the ground. So um, it's, it's interesting. I think, um, and, and I share the sentiment <laughs> with, with Adela about the role, you know, uh, engineering and, and how heavily engineered or heavily engineered uh, water governance is from a physical point of view, physical engineering. But I think when, when we as, you know, practitioners, researchers can bridge that gap with practitioners or engineers, that's, I think, that's when the click happens. And that's when we can start to, to develop and build uh, perhaps robust uh, institutional arrangements. Right? Can I pick up on that? Because one of the other themes we talked about was sort of the trans, the need for transdisciplinarity. And when I was studying, learning about water management in my graduate school at Cornell, it was part of, you know, one of my first classes was socio-technical aspects of irrigation that was co-taught by an engineer, an economist, sociologist, anthropologist, and political scientist who had, oh, there was some sniping about each other's disciplines, more performa, but they had had to go to different places to solve problems. And so they really had developed a a respect for each other. In um, the keynote conversation on South Africa, Barbara Schreiner, who was a key person in implementing South Africa's Water Act, which is held up worldwide as best practice, you know, the, the gold standard of, of water law. She was saying that, that, I mean, this was in the post-apartheid era, that the implementation failed because they just didn't have enough engineers. And she said if she had to do it over again, she would have really invested in training more black engineers because they just didn't have the capacity to go out and and do the technical parts that needed to accompany the social parts and so i think you it's a matter of getting them to go hand in hand but a since i was in grad school what i've seen is a lot of universities have been raising the disciplinary boundaries, you don't get rewarded for anything you do that's outside of your field's top five journals kinds of things. And that's a problem. <laughs> yeah, Ruth, thanks for mentioning that. That's something that gets talked about a lot on this podcast. Um, you know, as you might imagine, <laughs> I've seen that. I saw that. Uh, I've, I might be a little bit influenced by having watched it. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I'd, I'd be curious since you've taken us there. Um, I'd be curious to hear if any of you have thoughts on, you know, either, you know, best practices or not best practices that you've seen either in your departments and your um, schools or in others of how to support transdisciplinary research or like really good, what enables really good transdisciplinary research?
So one, uh, Ghana's Institute for Development Studies um, it has a really cool model where at the undergraduate level, people who come in their first year, they are trained in a broad set of technical and social science and, you know, all kinds of communications and extension and all, all kinds of things. Then they're sent out to a village for the, for the holidays, you know, I don't know whether it's six weeks or three months. And they're just supposed to be there to help villagers solve their problems. Then they come back for a second year and then a third year. Each year they get more and more specialized. So after that first year, they might choose to do engineering or social sciences or whatever else. Each year they go back to that same village I met one of those engineers and he was fabulous, you know, somebody who had been trained there and the faculty there. And it's for them, it's all about problem solving. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree with uh, Ruth there. I think, uh, I think it has to be intentional. And then and, uh, putting people together who don't, have uh, some shared experiences and who are just uh, dropped into a room together to write a grant proposal, let's say, is probably the worst possible way that this transdisciplinarity can take place. But that tends to be the model in a lot of at least US universities. And uh, so it has to be intentional on a number of fronts. And uh, one is in the training. Uh, the other is the experience as uh, Ruth is pointing out that you go out into the field and then you come back and you discuss with a variety of people. And I think it's also uh, intentionally selecting on people who are willing to do that. If a scholar or a practitioner is only interested in one thing and only wants to pursue that one thing, then I think maybe they're not as qualified for such an undertaking. So I think that there also has to be a recruitment, an intentional recruitment process that selects for people who are willing to work across disciplines. Yeah, and if I may add to that, I think the other intentional component is creating the, the social capital within the group, you know, building that team or that, you know, that group dynamic. Uh, I think, yeah, as Adela said, we're just used to just allocate time towards writing the grant, but we don't allocate time to that, you know, beer afterwards or before where the team starts to, you know, hang out and, and know each other on a more personal level. And I think that's how we start to, to develop that group dynamic that will then allow us to, to work throughout our differences or different perspectives. And the IESC conferences have been one of the great examples for me of that where there's always a field trip 
And that field trip, you end up sitting with somebody different on the bus or you see somebody from a different standpoint and you have these conversations and that forms a basis. And I was, ISC conferences uh, are my favorite, you know, of any. And I was really disappointed not to do this one in person, not to come to Arizona this year. But I have to say, um, the, the little social events that we had, I ended up going in, I made my little uh, avatar, and I just randomly went into a group. And I had the most rewarding hour that I've had in a long time of just meeting random young scholars you know, students and recent, and including one whom I had been on an ISC field trip with and, you know, got to say, oh, how is, is your baby now? And those personal connections, but also making new ones. And we have to, in, it's not just an investment in it. That, to me, that's, that's a big part of the reward. And maybe it's more collaborative people like that more but but I think it's the coffee breaks are not just a boondoggle they're they're a really important thing yeah I think that's a great um a great way to connect both the community building within you know the commons community as well as with how you have a transdisciplinary project I also feel like those commons community is pretty transdisciplinary so maybe those are the same thing um <laughs> So I wanted to bring us back a little bit back to, um, you know, the field, maybe out of the theoretical. Um, and I wanted, well, I wanted to start Adela by asking, bringing you back to bring us back to current events. Because <laughs> um, you were talking, you know, you started with talking about water scarcity in and being in Arizona. Um, and then you were talking about uh, climate change, hydrologic changes. You know, we have a drought now. Um, and I'm wondering if you see any of these dynamics that you're, that we're talking about, um, either the sort of traditional canonical commons, um, how we think about building institutions and maintaining them, or some of these new directions that are coming up in the conference in current events in the news right now around the drought um, in Arizona or in the West in general. Um, yeah, it's a weird mix, I think, of the canonical and then uh, some new efforts and, and combinations going on. And so uh, this drought in the Southwest has been in place for over two decades. And um, scientists using three ring data and other sources of data um, have identified these 20 years as like the driest over the last few centuries. And um, you see the canonical conflicts emerging between let's say agriculture and uh, municipalities over who gets what. So there's all of these distribution fights that are occurring across sectors within across states of upstream states and downstream states and 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 who gets what water so all of that is just 
right? The classic types of fights. I think um, what's new is an effort to think outside of the box because it's pretty clear that this isn't just your typical drought that's going to go away in you know two or three years and then everything is going to go back to normal for the next seven or eight years before the next drought hits. This feels like something new. And uh, there are efforts to think outside of the box, maybe not dramatically, and maybe not in breathtaking ways, at least not yet, but there are a variety of ideas that are being thrown out there that wouldn't have been thrown out there uh, 10 years ago, uh, such as uh, removing a dam or two or completely re-engineering or re-organizing um, uh, re, uh, uh, how uh, reservoirs are managed. Um, and really puzzling over what happens when we no longer have uh, the snowpack that was a major source of water storage in the West. And um, I think that those conversations are just beginning of trying to think outside of traditional solutions. I'm not sure, uh, I'm not sure where they're gonna go yet, but um, it's an exciting time for sure. So I know we're getting to the end of the hour. And so I thought um, maybe I'd pose a final question for each of you um, and ask you about what are you working on currently in your work? You know, this doesn't have to be related to the conference, but what's exciting to you um, about your current project? Where is it going? And are there any themes from the, you know, Water Commons conference that we've touched on that you think are bringing, you know, renewed insight into your work or just something you're excited to look into? Well, um, I could start. Um, for instance, uh, Adela and I have been working for quite some time uh, on this New York New York case and uh, trying to bring together uh, the study of institutional design with the, ins the study of, of behavior, you know, when you go and ask people what they actually do on the ground. Uh, we've recently published a paper where we do that and we're constantly thinking of how can we use existing uh, methodological tools like the institutional grammar in, in to, to help us answer those questions. Uh, Adela uh, hosted a, a workshop on the institutional grammar with Saba Siddiqui, and um, I think that was a, a, also a, a really interesting event and that sparked uh, lots of questions and interesting ideas from, from the participants. Um, and uh, I personally, that's, that's one of the areas that, um, that I am working on, and, and as I mentioned before, then the other part is trying to see whether these patterns we observe in a country like the US uh, replicate or not in a country like Argentina. Uh, and uh, at least in, in that's where sort of my, uh, my research or where I'm working on uh, right now. Awesome, thanks. Adela or Ruth? Okay, well, I'm, I'm working on one of the most exciting projects of my whole career in I'm working with this organization called Foundation for Ecological Security in India, where uh, oh, 
right around the time of the around 2011, they said, well, what do you have that would actually help us with improving governance of the commons and particularly tackling groundwater mining, you know, depletion, which is the hardest in many ways of any of the commons to manage because you can't even see it. And we had, I'd been talking with Juan Camilo Cardenas about the use of, of games that are used for study and collective action. We've been using them to see whether they can actually strengthen collective action by making communities aware of how their use of groundwater impacts others and that it's not just changes in rainfall that affect the water tables. And so we've seen promising results in, in a pilot of this, and now we're scaling it up along with Thomas Falk has done surface water games, and we're scaling these up, aiming to reach about 3,000 communities overall, um, depending on whether COVID lets us actually go back to the field. But if we can do that, and if it makes even a 10% change in by changing people's mental models and then getting them to look at the possibility of having rules, adopting rules, and then changing their behavior. Can we, can we go down that? Is this a new tool? And so it's really exciting to work with these folks who are really dedicated to the field and to really putting this into practice. I attended the, um, the webinar that you, the workshop, right? It was workshop. great. It was really exciting stuff. Oh, thank um, you. Adela. Yeah, I think uh, there's going to be a common theme across the three of us. And, uh, and, and that's uh, looking at uh, the interaction of institutional arrangements and behavior. And, um, and it's been, for me, it's been a lot of fun and a real pleasure to work with Tommy on, on this uh, project on using the institutional grammar to uh, both try to identify uh, patterns and policy designs in institutional arrangements, but then also bringing in the behavior piece of it and how people respond to institutional arrangements. And I think that's really important because um, I think and it's why I like what Ruth is doing of games in the field, because I think that these carefully controlled lab experiments are super important, but there are limitations and these limitations have always been understood, but I think a, a limitation that hasn't been uh, as uh, attended to is that uh, I think lab experiments overstate the impact of rules on human behavior. And uh, that's one of the reasons why it's important to go out into the field. And um, so uh, it's literally in Ruth's <laughs> example for Tommy and me, though, it uh, is more of, you know, uh, surveying folks or, or looking at behavior in relation to institutional arrangements or in response to institutional arrangements in settings that are more open-ended and there are many things going on and uh, 
people's choices are being driven by a variety of things in addition to the rules that are in place. And I think that'll give us a much more realistic view of what's possible with institutional arrangements in trying to guide and constrain behavior. Well, it sounds like a whole host of really exciting studies that you guys are working on, and we'll stay tuned to learn more. I think if you're a representative of the whole group at the conference, then we have a lot to learn um, and a lot of cool stuff coming. So thank you, three of you, so much for not only putting on a great conference, but for um, joining me. It was really great to speak with each of you and hear about your work. Thank you. you for this and and for the whole uh, podcast series. It's really fun. So yeah, uh, likewise. And, and if I may, I would like to just give a quick shout out to the other three members of, of the steering committee, uh, Laura Herzog, Simi Wahid, and Danny Lamb, uh, who have made uh, our meetings, that all the meetings we've had in preparation for this conference uh, so amazing. And, and, and one of the main reasons why this conference, I think, uh, was a success is because we had uh, a great team. Thanks for listening. The In Common Podcast is produced by Stefan Pardalo, Michael Cox, and myself. We are a partner project of the International Association for the Study of the Commons and the International Journal of the Commons. If you enjoyed this conversation, you could check out other episodes of the podcast on any podcast app or listen on our website, www.incommonpodcast.org. On our website, you'll find a link to our blog and our Patreon page, where we welcome you to make a small donation to help us cover our operating costs. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at incommonpod.org.